Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have another founder coming from Startup Nation. You know, amazing. You know, the, the incredible founders that come out of Israel is just like unbelievable. But but this founder today, I mean, he's done it multiple, multiple times. And now he's looking to really make a difference in, in a market that is massive. Uh, and we're really going to be talking about here marketplaces, how to think about adjusting, you know, the technology, the business model, so that you can really reach that level of scale that makes sense for everyone. Uh, and uh, I think that you're all going to have a blast, you know, listening and really getting inspired with our guest today. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today to the show, Oron Afek. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alham. Thanks for having me, man. So originally from Startup Nation. So uh, tell us how was in life growing up there? You know, Israel is a small place. It's, it's super tight. Grew up in a pretty small place and, and had some revealing experiences, you know, growing up. I'm sure I was the best soccer player, best student back in school. But, you know, growing up, realizing that I'm not among the best people when I got to the military. So everyone in Israel goes to the military and have this, you know, fusion reactor happening where you meet people from other places uh, that you may have not been exposed to before. And, and I think my first uh, my first few weeks in Flight Academy where I started were really, really revealing um, that, you know, surrounding myself with really good people um, and, and that were all smarter than me and, and more talented. I felt that that was the main kind of, uh, the best experience I could have as as a younger person uh, uh, coming into real life. So uh, I think that that experience is, is still, still resonates. One thing that is amazing is the um, that I find you know perhaps from from all those founders that I'm interviewing that go through the military process because I guess you know it's like a thing that you need to go through there. Uh, but in this case, you know, it's, I guess the level of discipline as well that it brings you know to the way that you're viewing things, to the way that you do business too. Uh, the ethic no, that, that, that it gives you too. I guess in this case, I mean, what, what did you get out of, you know, going through the, you know, military and, and special forces there in Israel? Yeah, I think, I think the, the ethic is a huge, hugely important point. I mean, you eventually, most of the time you're risking your life is because that's the absolute best way to do it. And in most cases, it's, it's the best way to do it because because you can minimize hurting human lives on the other side. I mean, you can always use you know, fighter jets to solve the problem, and and the majority of the problems are being solved um, with with a understanding of the other side in in hand, and and that's where you're willing to risk yourself. So I think the ethical aspects is also what drives 
excellence in some of the units and you know, people further down the line starting their own businesses and joining companies. So I think that that's huge. Uh, the other thing is really the sense of competitiveness that is not individualistic. So really um, uh, working as a team is really, really critical for success. And I'm sure that folks here in the U.S. are going through a similar process when they're joining a football team or, uh, you know, a swimming team. And it's always a team effort. And, and I think they're experiencing similar stuff. So also in the military, winning as a team is a huge pillar, a huge component. And yeah, I think I think the whole the whole notion of uh, discipline, as you said, is is really critical. So how do you overcome overcome other desires that, that um, you know, overcome ADHD, overcome like things that you just want to do uh, and just sit down, get focused for a long period of time. I think that's, that's very helpful. So then in your case, I mean, it's amazing because you, you, you didn't really look at the corporate side of things too much. I mean, you went right at it, you know, after this and, and you started your first, you went after, you know, one company after the other. So, so let's get into that. Why did you, you know, decide that, startup, you know, life, you know, was, was your thing, you know, just building and scaling companies and, and then walk us through how you, you know, brought your first one to life, which, uh, which that was sell expert. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for me, I, um, and I grew up, uh, as, as trying to, when I was probably 14, 15, until I was in 18, going to the military, I was trying to, um, trying to work for certain companies, you know, trying to make a living on summers, trying to make some money. Uh, I felt like I'm not a good employee. Uh, my dad has always been independent uh, in construction. Felt like uh, his ability to to create his own destiny, make decisions, and and uh, eventually he works harder than anyone else. But he, he has this freedom of choosing, um, getting up and doing what he does, and he likes it. So I I think I I sense that I likely not going to be successful if I go and work for a company. There's few experiences I had before the military working for other companies that felt very limiting to me. And so I, I guess that, you know, during that time between military and when I kind of started the first company, I felt like uh, uh, I'm likely to just, I'm better off starting my own thing. So, so one of the things that, that I've kind of like, um, you know, noticed as well and, 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 and thought about is how you've jumped from one industry to another, no? which I think it gives you like that knowledge transfer and that, that level of advantage, perhaps, you know, over, you know, others where you're able to bring that knowledge, you know, from another segment that you learn into whatever segment that you're looking tackling. But, but talking about the first, you know, industry that, that you got involved in, I mean, why, why the telecommunication space? Tell us what were you doing there? Well, completely opportunistic, Matt, the very, very smart person in university back in school and you know, he, he had basically invented a really, really good technology that um, is able to deliver applications into feature phones. And I thought, geez, we're solving a huge problem here. I mean, we, we're talking about the pre-smartphone, pre-Steve Jobs announcing the iPhone kind of era. Uh, you had so many different feature phones, you know, Nokia, Samsung. They had like hundreds of different variations of operating systems. Like, what if we could deliver a consistent applicative experience across all feature phones? With a similar fee, by the way, not too different for what Vim does today, which which I'm sure we're going to talk about later. But I was intrigued by that. I was intrigued how technology can solve a big engineering problem. I have no experience with technology at that point in my life, um, so I think it was pretty opportunistic. And then I think that the fact that we've been um, uh, you know, working with the company, trying to build it, uh, been there for about four years. My partner still continues to this date, and he's very successful. But 
back in the day, I think those early days, given it was very opportunistic, I think that was also for me what what really kind of was really telling like I should be moving on to something that is you know is, is even you know less opportunistic, something that is more intentional from my standpoint, something I can connect with in the personal level, not just cool technology that can solve a problem. Like I truly want to connect with the problem. So then in this case, from this experience with self self expert, I mean what what was your lesson? Because you know, right after you know you went at it, you know, again and you went at it, you know, in the in the next segment that you went in, you know, which was really gaming. So what what was your lesson with Cell Expert? Yeah, I think I think the main lesson is uh it, it's not gonna be enough to have a really good technology. You need to start, you know, Amazon is calling it working backwards. You need to start from the customer, the problem, the desire, the absolute number one or two priorities that that customer segment has, and then try to solve for it versus, you know, find a hammer and look for a nail. Um, and I think that was the biggest, uh, uh, just, the, just the biggest lesson that I learned on that time. So then let's let's talk about you know continuing here in the in the path of lessons. What did you what did you do with Smite, the gaming company, and what lesson did you get out of that experience? Yeah, so over there, you know, worked with some incredible people, and that was my first exposure to something that is more direct to consumer, giving you more instant gratification, uh, working you know in, in a more of a high speed environment. Uh, using data to understand behavior, that was a really, really um, uh, revealing experience. You know, up until that point, I was mainly dealing with large enterprises, uh, mobile operators, and so on and so forth that are really slow to move. And I think that experience was really, really uh, awarding from, from that standpoint. I think uh, there was a, definitely a need. You can see a need with using data, and you can see what people are asking and what they need. It, it's so much easier. And then at this point, also my um, I still wasn't happy. I, my, my happiness would still like reflect on good old days back in the military, you know, alongside with good people. And I was like, wow, I'm still not happy. I'm still not, I haven't found my happiness. And should I just go and work for McKinsey? Should I just go and find a reg regular job? And I think, you know, that's kind of what led me to take, you know, a couple of years off. And, oh, you know, I went to Spain, started to, to do some Ironman. I met uh, two German brothers, uh, Henrik and Holger. In Barcelona, and we did some um, uh, did some real estate uh, business there, and that that gave me some time to to really think through like what I've been through so far. I was a thirty year old um, looking for my next kind of thing, and uh, really tried to take on those learnings. So I think on the gaming side, really cool mechanics, really cool and fun and and satisfying to to take decision based on data. But on the other hand, uh, it it was still missing that mission part that wasn't like yeah closed for me and obviously i'm a little bit biased but um but definitely spain what a wonderful country to get inspired huh <laughs> i'm i'm still i feel i'm still waiting for closure man and uh, i hear you so with covid who knows i know i know i mean hopefully hopefully you know like we were able to see the end of the tunnel with this covid thing but in this case for you you know it really helped to really incubate what became your 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 current baby which is a rocket ship and uh, you know, I like to talk about it a little bit here, and uh, and I like to really, you know, perhaps have you bring all of us, you know, with the listeners through what was the moment where you came across, you know, this idea, and what were the sequence of events for you to really bring it to life. 
Yeah, and I appreciate it. I think for me, it was really sit down. I, I, I used a spreadsheet. It's funny, I think I never told the story, but I just used a simple spreadsheet and I, I said this simple exercise saying like, you know, if this was like 15 years ago and I could start any company uh, anywhere, um, what would be that company? I mean, famous companies. What would I be proud today to have my name on? Um, and the names I saw on this list were Airbnb, Uber, Amazon, and a long list of other marketplaces. And I was feeling like I'm, I'm really intrigued with this dynamic of supply and demand and how to create efficiencies and how to drive value to the top. I'm really intrigued with that. And then I said, all right, that, that makes sense. And, and maybe I can find an opportunity to start a technology company in a, in a market that, that strive to have a marketplace. And during that time, you know, around 2013, 2014, Obamacare really started to make some headlines uh, here in the United States. And I started to get more exposure in Israel and Spain about healthcare and U.S. healthcare in particular. And got really intrigued how this supply and demand driven marketplace has been the single most expensive industry, uh, highest cost industry in, in the world. And the more I dove into the mechanics that define your self-care, such as the cost of care, the quality of care, and overall the prices and the variation of price that is not correlated with quality, I was more and more intrigued. I said, that's exactly the underlying dynamics that, that were in any other industry, like the taxi industry or the Stay other people's home industry, the hospitality industry, or you know, like things have not been priced adequately. Uh, where you know quality and cost were creating a value score, right? So that was really, really intriguing, and that was the reason why we started today. Vim back in the day, BookMD in 2015. I, I got introduced to uh, two co-founders uh, through Sequoia Israel. Uh, they kind of been the founding investor in this company. They introduced us three, Yaela, Saf, and myself. Um, and we started the company in 2015. And it was, um, it was an awesome journey. So then what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money here? Yeah, you know, so we quickly realized that while we would love to start a direct-to-consumer marketplace like the companies I just mentioned, Uber, Airbnb, Amazon, which would give us the speed and the data-driven approach like I had in Smite, you know, would give us that ability to, to make quick iteration and evolve. U.S. healthcare is not a direct-to-consumer market. Um, U.S. healthcare is built via insurance and, and folks that use healthcare services need to have insurance. So we really started to work um, uh, with large enterprises as, as our customers. Uh, and, and because we wanted to be more nimble, we actually started to work with employers. So our first customer was, uh, was Disney, actually. And Disney is a big employer. You know, some people don't know, but they take risk for their population, um, around 160,000 employees back in the day. And, and they were using us to, you know, we started, we thought, you know, we're going to be Amazon. What is the books we're going to be selling? And, and they're gonna be, they, they've been using us to get people to the right MRI, CT scan, uh, PET scan, uh, imaging, high-tech imaging service when they had a need. Um, and we were able to go and work with providers uh, that have those services. And by just getting someone an earlier appointment when there is underutilization, uh, you know, paying the provider upfront in cash, we actually got really good discounts over what insurance companies were able to negotiate. So we, we were getting 
you know, 40, 50% off the insurance price for those services. Um, and it was pretty cool for a smart company, for a small company that works with an employer. The challenge here, there was a dual challenge. One is that an employer, even if you operate in a place like LA and you have Disney next to you, which is one of the biggest employer, you still are dropping the ocean. You are dropping an ocean of millions of people. And so the geodensity that, that you are creating to really manipulate and influence the supply side design is very, very limited. And given that you can't really just go and buy Google ads or Facebook ads to generate demand, you need to work with those employers. Once again, it's really, really hard to solve that chicken and egg problem. That's problem number one. Problem number two, even if we've been able to attract many employer lives and create some sort of a marketplace dynamic, those patients are not the true decision makers in the marketplace that is called healthcare. The real decision makers are the doctors. They making most decisions that lead to downstream costs. And I'll think about it as you know, pivot number one for the company that we need to stop working with employers. We need to start working with large insurance companies that give us geodensity. And we need to stop working with patients. We need to start working with doctors to influence decisions and, and really influence where things are going. So that was the first and biggest pivot of the company. So then, so then in this case, I mean, obviously you guys, you know, have raised quite a bit of money and you were alluding to Sequoia earlier. How much capital have you guys raised today? So a little bit over a hundred million so far. And while Sequoia, Great Point Ventures still remain larger shareholders in the company and continue to back us up over the years, um, we really started to realize if we want to work with payers uh, or insurance companies, you can call them this way, um, we, and then subsequently want to engage with providers, um, given that every provider sees multiple different insurance companies, we need to have what we think about today as a multi-payer approach to our product. It means that we need to represent multiple insurance companies and not a single one in every given market to drive provider adoption. Once again, we're talking about this marketplace dynamics and how you produce them. Um, so early on, we recognized the fact that we need to have some of those insurance companies, investors in our company. So as you know, it's all public anthem. Uh, you know, the health group, uh, Premier Blue Cross, Florida Blue are some of the investors in our company. Walgreens is now an investor in the company. So we, we wanted to bring them together around the table, really the decision makers to drive that multi-pair adoption that proved to be a critical step in the way. So it's, it's interesting. So walk us through what has been the, you know, the transition from, from one cycle to another, because one thing that was very interesting to me, and I'm sure that the listeners are also going to find it interesting too, is that how early the relationship with Sequoia, which is one of the best venture capital firms in the world, how early that happened in the process for you guys? Well, I think that um, in my case, it happened really, really early to the extent that the partner who invested in us from Sequoia Israel, he and I actually served in the same military units. And the relationship started out earlier. And, you know, we were talking about this concept when he first became a partner at Sequoia. He, he was helping to design the concept it was really from inception um, very, very early on. It was a partnership and it still is a partnership. Um, and then he was the one introducing me with my two co-founders. So this may be extreme story to what other people may experience with, with venture capital firms, including names like Sequoia. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I would always be gr grateful for that, that guy, Tal, Tal Morgenstern. But 
he's now with Lightspeed, by the way. Got it, got it. So then, so then how did it change, like, the expectations on how you were thinking about raising money from one round to another one? Because how many rounds have you guys done so far? Two and change. So then let's talk about, like, how the expectations changed from one to another and how you also were approaching them. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, in the first round when we, well, I would say two and change because Sequoia did the seed and then we did an A round and, and now we just completed our B round. So um, the seed round was mainly around Look for someone who can believe in the team and the industry, but are not necessarily married to the idea. And they appreciate that ideas could change. But if they placing a bet on the right team in the right industry at the right time, they know something good is going to happen. So that was the need for the early investor. The A round that was led by Great Point Venture based out of Silicon Valley and Andrew Perlman, uh, it was mostly to focus on. You know, have you guys found some initial interest, some initial success, not massive revenue-driven success, some initial product market fit within such a huge industry that can scale? Now, they didn't ask us, they didn't want us to prove it can scale, but they wanted to check our thesis. Is what you've been, like, have you landed on an idea that can theoretically scale? And if it's scaled, can it be a huge can it solve for a huge pain point? And that was still, I think, very classic for some like Andrew Pearl and a GPV to lead such a round because he's an entrepreneur. He understands where we're at. We're really, really early. Um, and, and I think if we went to strategics at this point, it was too premature. Yeah. The B round was, was more of a, all right, we, we've done this a couple of times. You know, now we really try to get to more meaningful revenue. Uh, we want to get customer commitment, given that our industry is so, um, you know, there's so many different players. They're all very, very strong and entrenched. How do we break through those walls? How do we bring them together? That was really calling for a strategic round. Uh, and so we really started to work with the large insurance carriers uh, for participation in the round. And also those, those investments were all tied and are all tied to commercial expansion with those companies in their prospective markets. Uh, and so that, that is obviously a um, very, very, very useful thing to do. Um, and uh, I think it was a good, a good choosing of, of the right investors at the right time. So, you know, it's very interesting, obviously, what you guys are doing. You know, but, but, but one thing that is for sure very interesting is the fact that you're dealing with, like, three different things at the same time. So... Obviously, two at the same time is the fact that you're building like, like building a marketplace, like you're building two companies at the same time because you got the supply, the demand, all of that stuff happening. And then at the same time, you have the other adversity or the other uncertainty that is created by being in a kind of like regulated, you know, type of space. So how did you find the medium, you know, in that triangle of, of uncertainties to really, you know, not only survive, but then also thrive as a company? Yeah, man, this is a super thoughtful question. Look, I mean, at the beginning, we actually were sure we can just go ahead and pay physicians to make the right decisions and thus drive cost reduction and quality improvement. I mean, it's funny, but you could save 15, 1600 bucks per click with a simple decision a doctor would take. I mean, it's unbelievable. And that's just the average. I mean, you could save $20,000 worth of decisions on average downstream. I mean, it's a, such a huge industry. Every decision makes so much 
downstream impact, um, uh, positive or negative, depends how you make it. The, apparently, you can't just pay doctors to do what you want in healthcare. I mean, paying someone to refer to a specific place is actually a huge, stark law violation. Right? So the idea was at the beginning, uh, okay, what are the, okay, we're trying to do the right thing. And the regulator in the United States, like CMS, is encouraging companies to do the right thing. So understanding this regulation, understanding how do you navigate within it, and how do you really align yourself with frameworks that today are known to be called value-based care? How do you align yourself with value-based care frameworks that create an alignment of incentive between payers and providers uh, versus try to reinvent the wheel and do your own thing? So. That obviously requires a lot of things that we didn't have back in the day, which is understanding of the underlying healthcare ecosystem. So it goes beyond the technology and how we integrate and service data. It gets into what are the underlying economics in the healthcare industry and what are the, uh, what can we really, and you asked about the business model, what can we really build for? What are the things we can incentivize for and so on and so forth? So a pretty, pretty tough thing to navigate, but thankfully the United States government and CMS are really in favor of interoperability and creating seamless integration between data and workflows and incentives. And that wave that started, I think, when I got here seven years ago today is in its peak and it's only going to continue and increase and become more important. Nice. So then let me ask you this. How big is Veeam today? I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that, uh, that, that you could share? Yeah, so so Vim Vim is uh, around 140 employees across Israel, the U.S. and Ukraine, um, where we have uh, in Tel Aviv uh, most of our product and engineering teams. In the Ukraine, we have engineers and, and some product resources. In the U.S., we have our go-to-market teams, uh, and and start start to build now more product resources here as well. Um, we are active in six different markets. Biggest markets being California, Florida. Uh, and, and now expanding into New York, what brought me to New York from California after almost seven years. Uh, so I just moved here. Um, that's kind of where the company is serving, you know, uh, very large insurance carriers and uh, many, many thousands of physicians. Nice. So imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later where the vision of Vim is completely realized. What does that world look like? I don't know. And that's the, that's the exciting thing. And I, I'll give an example. Um, I think when Steve Jobs came up with the iPhone, he didn't realize what he's going to do to certain industries. And I'll take one industry and, and I, I want to think about it as a comparable. So um, take fossil fuels, for example. Um, when you came up with a smartphone, there are two work stream of innovation really affected and, and will affect fossil fuel industry. One is lithium ion batteries and how so much competition and smartphone manufacturers came into the industry and competing for smartphones. And that really reduced the cost of lithium-ion batteries and improve the quality and length. And, and that really yielded, uh, you know, innovations like Tesla and other electric car company that haven't thought they could actually use batteries to, to drive a car. And I think that that was the first wave of innovation that yielded self-driving cars that are electric. And the second thing that was enabled is, is marketplaces like Uber and Lyft that really made transportation as a service, a real a real thing, and really start eating into private car ownership. So the, the combination of those two things, you know, transportation as a service, reduction in car ownership alongside electric clean vehicles is, is what basically causing a lot of money to be invested in tech from countries who originally were counting on oil. 
Um, and so five years from now, I would love to see things that I may not be expected today. So if Veeam is successful, our operating system that we install with every provider ideally in the next five years in the United States um, would become the facto way of any innovator in healthcare to do business with physicians and insurance companies. And we just want to be that canvas, that browser, that iPhone that people use to build their own innovation. And that's why for us, success would mean that we are deployed in as many places as possible and giving those other entrepreneurs ways to innovate and to build their own apps. So we don't think that by ourselves we can solve all the problems and opportunities in healthcare, but we truly believe we can be that browser if you want to give other people way to know. I love it. So imagine that I put you into a time machine, Oron, and, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that moment where you were coming out of the special forces and you were looking at a world where you were probably going to start something to put a gap, you know, in, in, in a market where you saw a problem and, and bring a solution. But, you know, you had that opportunity of speaking, speaking with your younger self and give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now, Oron? I mean, it's been three companies now. Uh, it's been, well, actually, this is, the, this is the fourth one, sorry, that you're in. So, I mean, you have your fair amount of lessons. So imagine if you had that advantage of just having that younger self and, and granted that that younger self was listening, right? Because typically when we're younger, we don't listen any, to anything. But imagine you were listening. I mean, what, what would you tell that younger self? Yeah, I mean, the first thing, surround yourself with people that are 10x smarter than you uh, and, and put your ego aside. I mean, just Saf, my co-founder, he's 10x smarter than I am. So get, get, him, get to be really, really close with him. And, you know, you don't need to have 100 people. Like three or four would be enough. Just surround yourself with them. As, as they said, you know, good to great. It's, it's an amazing book. They said, you know, first put the right people on the bus. Oh, yeah. Then decide where the bus is going, right? So, like, get the right people on the bus. That's the first thing. Second thing, put your ego on the side. Like, if you understand you made a mistake, if, if you discover based on data, based on feedback that, that you need to course correct, just put it aside. There's no ego. Just correct, course correct in live, in you know, radical, radically transparent manner. That and just just go to the other side because that's what's really needed. I think those two things are what I would love, and I, and I haven't been that way. I was, you know, I was afraid to surround myself with smarter people. I, I think I was afraid to admit mistake and change. And and, and if I was going, you know, uh, 15 years back, I mean that that would be my biggest two things. I would. I love it. Amazing stuff. So, Oron, for the people that are listening and watching, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, you know, just email me at oron at getvim.com. And I'd love to hear from you and you know, love to hear your thoughts and suggestions. Amazing. Well, Oron, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks for having me, man. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.